those are often the core skills, yeah. like teamwork and creative problem solving and critical thinking. Those are not skills that you typically learn from a worksheet. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Today on the podcast, I'm featuring Dr. Tom Lowers. Tom is a roboticist and technologist out of Carnegie Mellon University, and instead of entering into a career with a consumer-facing technology firm or a B2B service provider, Tom chose to make the technology that he learned about at CMU and elsewhere more accessible through an education startup. That education startup, BirdBrain Technologies, is approaching 10 years in business. They are bootstrapped and they have a couple of robots that they bring into the classroom so that students can get exposure to a technology that will define society and culture in the next generation and also make this technology more accessible to children from all sorts of different backgrounds. Super glad to have Tom on the podcast, and I think that you'll learn a lot from hearing him speak about his perspective on education. Here is my conversation with Tom Lowers. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me here. So before we get into Bird Brain Technologies, this is kind of an easy entry point in. I'm reading your website, and at the end of the bio, it says you'd be an invaluable ally in the event of a robot uprising. So before we get into the interview, before we get into the story of Bird Brain, whose side are you really on? (laughs) (laughs) I'm on the side of the humans, definitely. That's why I'm an invaluable ally. You want me on on the human side to make sure that the robots don't uh, Gotcha, don't take over. gotcha. There was a little ambiguity yeah. there. Just That's making true. sure that you weren't, you know, like giving the nudge and the signal yeah. to the robots. So yeah, it's your like, hey, willingness super to AI, flip. don't kill me. <laughs> cool. So to start things off, BirdBrain makes two different, maybe, maybe this isn't even the right categorization. Finch and the Hummingbird yep. are two different products. products. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about what each of those are and how they're used by students? Okay, so I will start with the Finch since I have a prototype of the next version here. Mm -hmm. So the Finch is a robot that's designed for students from kindergarten to college to learn computer science, coding, computational thinking, and to allow students to see a physical representation of their program, of their code. Okay. Basically, the way it's used is... In kindergarten, first, second grade, a student may use a tablet to program the robot to learn very basic things like sequencing, uh, some control structures. So basically the idea that an algorithm is a sequence of actions. So this is what we call computational thinking. As they get older, they can progress to blocks-based coding with things like make code, Scratch is a popular environment in in this realm. Basically things that allow students to create full computer programs, but using um, puzzle-like drag-and-drop blocks. And then at the middle school and high school level, they can and college level, they can use the Finch in standard programming languages like Python and Java. And at, at all of these levels, they're actually, in many cases, creating kind of the same programs, but they're creating them in increasingly complex ways, uh, allowing them to kind of level up their skills as they get older. And the Hummingbird? So the Hummingbird is an electronics kit 
that's designed to kind of marry arts and crafts with robotics and to allow robotics to be a tool that's used in a completely interdisciplinary fashion. So unlike the Finch, the Hummingbird's a kit of parts. It has all, of, all the robot guts. So motors, sensors, LEDs, a controller board that is programmable. And then the students take those parts, usually combine them with cardboard and other arts and crafts supplies, to build like crazy animatronics. Think like if you've been to the Tiki Room at Disneyland or like places like that where you've got these kind of crazy robotic creatures. And the way they use that in school is often the content for the thing that they're building comes from a core class. So it may come from the English language arts class. It may come from the art class. It may come from the science class. And then they may use a kind of add-on computer technology course to do the programming, some of the engineering. And so it's a way of tying these disciplines together to demonstrate to students that learning is not actually siloed the way we do it at school. You can create a project that draws from many different disciplines. It's often a team project also, so you may have some specialization going on, like one person might be the programmer, one person might be the artist, one person might be the, the engineer. And that's, that's essentially how it's used. Now, it's used primarily from fourth grade to 12th grade. So it's a little bit more um, narrow from, a, from an age range than the Finch. And this may be exciting or make total sense to a parent that might be listening. Uh, for someone like me, I remember in like a junior high type of level, there was like some sort of like special program where we got to play around with a, it's like a yellow brick type of robot. Yeah. Um, and that was like the exception. It was incredibly brief. I, I honestly don't remember anything other else than it's like shape. And we got to do like light sensing or something mm -hmm. incredibly basic like that. So it would make sense that <laughs> over more than a decade ago, uh, more and more technology has permeated the classroom, but the degree to which it has is part of the mission of bird brain, which is to push this not only into the hands of young people, but specifically uh, democratize and have a very kind of egalitarian mindset as to who can learn to use this technology effectively. Is that a good yeah, categorization? Absolutely. I mean, our, our mission statement is to inspire deep and joyful learning for all students through creative robotics. And that for all students is very intentionally chosen because I decided kind of at the outset not to make this a consumer educational toy company, but to make it an education company that's focused on school use. And our products are designed with that use case in mind. And what that means is providing curriculum, learning materials, professional development, so teachers can use these, these types of tools in school as much as possible. Now, the experience that you describe is kind of, I would st say it's still more the norm than the exception. There are many schools, though, many, many schools that have gone much deeper where it's, you know, 15, 20, 30 content hours devoted to like creating a, creating a crazy um, crafts-based robot or 15, 20, 30 hours at the elementary school level in coding and coding a robot. So there, there is more of that. But in many cases, it's still kind of the one-hour activity or the quick thing that we do once a year that's just to inspire somebody you know, and, and that's still much better than nothing. Don't get me wrong. Yep. The other thing that we are trying to do with all of the materials that we develop is in many cases, these will, these kinds of things will start in the after school environment or the summer camp program where there's a little bit more freedom or sometimes in, in like a gifted and talented course. I'm fine with that as sort of the first wave, but I'm not satisfied with that. So I want schools to 
push it into the regular classroom again because then you reach all students. So when you when you say that you made this very conscious choice of not making a consumer-facing product but an education-based product, what constraints does that impose that would maybe not be imposed should you be pursuing a consumer-facing so it's really a question of materials development okay. um, more than anything else, although there are, there are things in the hardware development that change a little bit also. From a materials development, in school use, you are assuming that you have a teacher and a set of students. That's the use case we imagine, whether that's in school or at a summer camp or at an after school, we're assuming that kind of use case. And so what that means is that you need to develop two sets of materials, one for the students directly to allow them to learn how to use it, but also one for the teachers to allow them to learn how to teach with it. And so if this was a consumer company, we would not create that second set of materials. We would focus all on, all of our efforts would be on how to get the students to use it, to play with it, um, sometimes for educational purposes, sometimes not. You know, we might have modes that are purely for fun, uh, which in our case, we've never developed a mode that is, I would say, purely for fun. So it really does get into kind of what do you focus your energy on? And then there's all these other considerations, like in a school you have oftentimes complicated information technology setups. You have to develop your software so that it'll work in that kind of environment where some things are locked down. It's sort of arbitrary. It's, it's highly varied across all the school districts. Gotcha. And so another part of it is if I'm getting this correctly, these are rented out to the, the schools and returned to BirdBrain after the end of the school no. year? No. Okay. No. So we, we sell directly to schools. Okay. Uh, we also sell, sell through resellers. We also, for the Finch, have a loan program, and that's actually free loans, more like a library than a rental program. Gotcha. So you may be, like, glomming onto that. Yeah. So that was actually started sort of as a philanthropic, how can, you know, how can my business give back to the community? You know, again, the mission is for all students. Well, even even if we get to all students in certain school districts, we will still see, because of the inequities in school district funding, that those school districts will trend towards affluent students, right? Yeah. The loan program is an attempt to kind of balance that, to provide schools that don't have the funding access to access to robots to allow them to use it for a couple months. And and I just want to expand on that idea, which is that as someone who has the PhD in, in robotics, like you deeply understand this technology, the recognition that this is not only a crucial part of being prepared for a workforce of the future, a society of the future, but also an acknowledgement that this is something that is, and maybe this is even like ridiculous to say, but like learnable by anyone. Like it isn't something yeah. that is uh, a, a gift for the elite few or a a recognition for uh, a limited demographic of the population. It's your belief that this could be widely understood and consumed if the educational vehicle is shaped the right way. Absolutely. And I mean, that is the, I, I think that computational thinking engineering design process and just general like interdisciplinary projects creativity those are things that all students need to be learning in school it's almost unconscionable that you could have a k-12 curriculum that doesn't touch on any one of those or even or excludes any of those and so the tools that that i develop are in service of those of of learning those types of things i mean if you look at what kinds of work 
is compensated well, what kinds of work is valued in society, those are often the core skills, like teamwork and creative problem solving and critical thinking. Those are not skills that you typically learn from a worksheet. They're skills that you learn from projects, from thinking on your own, from collaborating with others. And so fundamentally, like, I don't care how schools do that. I'm providing a way for them to do it, hopefully. But like, that's what, that's the real goal, I guess. Gotcha. And that has to be for all students. Totally. And the confidence, like if you actually, like I know, I, I wouldn't know how to do it, but if I saw you make the robot move here before mm-hmm. we, we were just testing it when we got started, I would know that that would give me confidence if I could figure out how to do that yeah. once. Like, damn, I'm a smarter than I thought I was. Yeah. Okay. So getting back to bird brain technologies and the origin story. So you guys are coming up on 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. So take me back about 10 years the impetus or the catalyst or the inspiration for this business opportunity and this mission that you're pursuing? Yeah. Um, so I'd have to take you back 15 years to tell Bring the it. full story. So I was a student at Carnegie Mellon's Robotics Institute in a lab called the Create Lab. And that lab is all about empowering communities of practice by developing new robotics-based technologies. And I was Communities work- of practice. Communities of practice. So a community of practice could be like... Um, a group of citizen scientists got it um, and they want to measure air quality or a group of teachers in the case that I was working in and they want to teach a certain subject so i was working at the time on and this is 2005 2006 on two projects that led to the two products that we now sell to the finch and the hummingbird the first of those projects was all about designing a robot from the ground up to inspire students to stay in computer science. And at that time, this is right after the dot-com bubble burst, Yeah, there was a lot of concern, actually, that not enough students were going into computer science, that we were going to have like not enough software developers, software engineers. It's actually like f- almost flipped. I mean, it's, it's still important for students to go in, but now there's a lot of students going into computer science. Yeah. So, so one of those projects was designing a robot for high school and college level students, because no one talked about programming robots in elementary school back then, for computer science to inspire them to continue in computer science education. And that project led to the Finch robot after about four years of research. The other project was called Arts and Bots, and it was initially about addressing middle school girls and trying to engage more of them to stay in STEM, so in engineering, science, technology, math. We saw at the time that there was a big drop-off in terms of their interest from 5th grade to 8th grade in in STEM subjects. Like in 5th grade, it was still quite high. By 8th grade, it had dropped quite a bit below boys. And where that project actually came from is two women in the lab kind of said to themselves, well, what would I like if I was, you know, back when I was in 7th grade? And these women were very much in STEM careers. Yeah. So... It was, and the answer was not what is currently being offered. So let's try to develop something different. And so we started working with groups of middle school girls and just playing with technology, like playing with LEDs, playing with microcontrollers, seeing what stuck, seeing what was interesting. And we, it quickly evolved into like, let's merge arts and crafts and technology. And then that became, well, let's create a kit that was really developed for this use case, you know, of having middle schoolers merging arts and crafts with technology. And then the way that project shifted a little bit was, you know, in 2010, 2011, we gave those kits to teachers and they started using them 
in their classrooms, which was surprising to us because we had originally been working with after-school groups. And it turned out that what we developed had broader use cases. It really was about kind of interdisciplinary project-based learning that kind of anyone could do or participate in in the school during the school day in regular course subjects. And that was really interesting because, and our thinking also evolved a little bit because, you know, at the beginning it was kind of exclusively girl-focused and I think it was good in terms of developing the technology in that direction, but it was also good that it didn't didn't stay exclusively girl-focused because when you reach all students and you've created something that's gender-neutral and appeals to both genders, then it doesn't necessarily become something that's in like the pink category, right? Right. Which is almost a way of ghettoizing something. Uh, like you want you want something that is equally appealing where the where the girls see that their work is, you know, the same or better quality than the boys. And so clearly they build the confidence to do the, you know, to continue in this, in, in these fields. Yeah. One of the things it, it's not precisely the same, but it's of a similar energy to me, which is if you can just make the thing more accessible and create the entry point, we talk about it here because we're doing a bunch of stuff in creativity where, you know, our creatives who are well-versed in Photoshop know all the nuances of what is a complex software and then you have people who can start and they can hop on canva and in a couple minutes have an aesthetically pleasing graphic that is you know not going to reach the potential heights that a more powerful software like photoshop Mm -hmm. could attain but really when you root it in that kind of ethos of accessibility it now becomes something where you maybe 10x or 100x the population that is actually capable of doing some graphic design. So this is really in that similar vein of how does this not only accessible from a use case standpoint, entry point example, but also has the kind of appeal to make it like, hey, this is actually engaging. Like I made the thing drive around or Mm -hmm. whatever the uh, functions may be. Yeah. And and I see that even with adults. So I've led um, teacher trainings with the Hummingbird Kit with the Finch Robot. Now now we have somebody on staff who actually does that pretty much full time. But my favorite teachers are the art teachers in those trainings because yeah. like, you know, with the hummingbird kit, they come in often more cautious, um, a little more anxious about it. But by the end, their projects are the ones that are often the like most incredible projects. You know, they're like there's they're just so interesting and creative and oftentimes beautiful. And just as complex from an engineering and programming standpoint as as everybody else's but with sort of an added magic of just being beautiful yeah so yeah it's it's interesting to see that even at the uh, even at the adult level the going deep podcast is underwritten by piper creative shooting editing and publishing quality content is overwhelming we make it easy so you can save time build your brand and grow faster say hello at pipercreative.co so let's talk a little bit. You talked about someone who does that exclusively now. The company's coming up on 10 years. As much as there is a element of product development that has to be, you know, a skill for a technology startup, there are other elements of just the composition of a business and the skills of entrepreneurship that get married to your skills as a roboticist and a thinker in the realm of education. What have you had to school yourself on since the inception of BirdBrain to continue to persist and last here for a decade? Uh, A lot. (laughs) 
Um, so, I mean, the first few years, I was mostly working by myself with a few consultants for special specialty skills. And at that time, what I was really learning about were production, manufacturing, like how to get these things manufactured, setting up a web store, very simple things, accounting, bookkeeping. I did most of that by myself. I decided early on that bootstrapping was the right way to start this type of business. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that means making the shipping labels yourself. You know, it means doing a lot of grunt work. Humility. Yes. In 2014, I started hiring employees. And so that's great in that you can now delegate some tasks. But one thing I really had to learn was how to delegate. Another thing I had to learn was sort of the how to manage people and also how to deal with HR and HR concerns. So, you know, how to hire people, how to let them go, like how to try to make sure that they grow, you know, while they work with you and that it is a positive experience for everyone. Um, I really think about people, you know, who work with me as like, it's not just about what can you bring to me, but what is this experience bringing to you for your future career path? So I don't feel like anybody has to be, you know, 100% loyal to me for, for the entire length of bird brain technologies. Yeah. But I want to make sure that it's a mutually beneficial relationship that results in growth for everybody, right? But I didn't have any of those skills when I started. And so learning those skills has been primarily advising, finding people who can help me either as advisors or potentially as employees who can help, you know, from a strategic perspective. Other things that I've had to learn about are the value of sales and marketing. As an engineer, yep. I definitely did not value those at the beginning, at the outset. How to run marketing campaigns, how to do social media, all of those things. Um, not that I, <laughs> not that I've really learned how to do those things, I, but I've found people who do who can do them and so i see kind of every aspect of of the business and it's in a way it's a humbling experience because you're like huh i used to do like everything and i did some things very poorly and now i see people doing them well and it's it's nice but i have no idea how they're actually doing them you know in many cases like i've i've and this is one of the challenges is like delegating but i've managed to get to a place where there are other experts in the company who know things about things that I don't necessarily know. And I've learned to become more and more okay with that. Yeah. And I'm hoping to continue that process. That is how you grow a business, right? You can't, you can't have like 10 people, much less a hundred people and know what every single one of them is doing at all times. You need to just focus on developing the structure where it all works. Yeah. Getting to work on the meta system of mm -hmm. sorts. Yeah. So you mentioned from the jump, bootstrapping was the way to go. And unlike, we're going to have conversations of privilege and things like that, but relative to most of the population, a roboticist coming out of CMU has way more street cred than the average person that might mm -hmm. want to go around and start fundraising. We start talking about uh, robots. We start talking about education. There's some cool opportunities there. How have you thought about that? And, you know, in the same realm of kind of like managing growth and the growth of an organization, how you balance those type of things? I mean, the decision initially came from kind of the way I was thinking about several different factors. And one of those was literally, what would I do with a million dollars? That's a common question yep. in entrepreneurship, right? And I said to myself, well, I don't know. I don't have enough experience to 
believe that I will spend a million dollars wisely yeah. at this stage. I'd rather just see if a few people will buy these robots that I'm going to make. <laughs> and so, so that was an important piece of it. Another piece was like, is this kind of company that I'm considering, you know, back in 2010, is it something that people would want to invest in necessarily, like, especially at the venture capital level? Yeah. And I thought, well, I could twist the narrative to make it appealing. I could create the hockey graph, you know? Yeah. But I didn't believe it. You know, at my core, I didn't believe that that, that was actually going to be true. I thought that an educational robotics company would, by necessity, be small and have to grow slowly because education is slow to change. And what we're selling is something that's kind of weird as it is, like especially in 2010. There are not that many robots that are being used in education in general. So I thought, okay, well, what the VCs will tell me is go after the consumer market, which makes sense from their perspective. Mm -hmm. It's a bigger market and it's easier to sell something kind of quickly but it, it wasn't my interest and so i decided to go this alternate route it has been i think a positive choice because education is slow growing it is hard to convince people to adopt at scale i've seen some of my venture capital funded kind of competitors in many cases stagnate or stall out or in a few just crash and so the price discipline that bootstrapping imposes on you the kind of like just you know make it work get your unit economics to actually work make sure you make a profit on every single robot you sell like that stuff's important and especially in this market which is everybody tells me educational sales is like the worst market you could be in yeah it's i think it's the way you have to be so let's talk a little bit more about the sales cycle because on one side slow sales cycle, frustrating, patience, all these things. On the flip side, akin, there's also a whole realm of like GovTech where you get in, you get the government contract, you do the job, you're pretty entrenched. There's a, there's a pretty solid relationship in terms of the kind of, you know, just onward, slow, methodical march of these institutions that once you're incorporated into that, there's some security. And obviously, you know, they're, they're going to demo it and test it before mm -hmm. that get, happens. But that's kind of the, the positive on the other side of the trade-off for that slow moving nature. But, you know, you acknowledge yourself more of a technologist first, had to learn the appreciation for sales, had to learn that skill to some degree, even though there's other uh, folks on the team that might be, you know, collaborating on that now. What what have you come to learn about selling into an institution like a school district that many of our listeners might not have the experience of actually having gone through? So I think there's different levels of sales into school districts. And in the beginning, all of our sales were grassroots to basically individual teachers. Almost all of our sales were that way. And that's great if you have that base and your products are good enough for word of mouth to spread positively and that's what happened for the first few years. I had all, I spent nothing on marketing yeah. for like three years, literally nothing. And our sales, you know, quadrupled over that period of time to enough to where it was paying for me, you know. But once you validate kind of product market fit with those early adopters and you've developed the materials so that you can go after kind of the next scale up, which again is in line with our mission of for all students, right? How do we get into the school district? How do we make sure it's not just one teacher? How do we make sure that, you know, if that teacher goes away, the kits don't sit in a closet somewhere? Like that's one of my worries. Yeah. 
Uh, I want to build enough institutional knowledge at the school district level. And so how do you do that? Well, in the last few years, two things have happened. One is there's much more top-down pressure from like state governments. There are now state standards on computer science education. They didn't exist three or four years ago in most states. They now exist. And there's funding as well. There's much more funding out there than there were than there was like four years ago for this type of technology. So administrators are feeling pressure from the top and from their parents that they weren't feeling five years, six years ago. And at the same time, I think our technologies, our tools, we've been building materials, we've been making it possible for more and more teachers to adopt our tools without necessarily being early adopters. So now we can go to a school district and say, look, we have a 10-year track record. We have literally hundreds of thousands of students who have used our, our products, thousands of school teachers. We believe that you can implement this, but it's going to, in many cases, take a custom approach. So, you know, let's identify the, the people on your team who are the most likely to want to adopt this. Let's get their buy-in. So you, I think the, to make this long story short, the thing you need to get to make a, a school district sale is buy-in from the administrators and buy-in from at least a set of teachers who will implement it. They have to believe that it's actually going to help their students. You know, that's the important thing. That's the fundamental goal of school. And it seems like really from from like an actual deliverable for that district, they're getting X amount of robots or X amount of programs and, and products they're also getting the seminar, the training, the other elements of, mm -hmm. of ongoing support so that this thing doesn't peter out over the course of yeah. a year and they can actually deliver on the, the promise. That's right. And that's our goal. And that's what you need. You need all elements of that. As You have to think about your product as all of those pieces. You can't just think of it as a piece of hardware that you've designed. You think of it as hardware, software, learning materials, professional development for teachers. Gotcha. So one of the things that I'm also always curious about, and if you're comfortable talking about this, as a father who works in technology, understands this stuff intimately, and clearly has opinions about where the general consensus and the general kind of frameworks of education should go, your kids have the benefit of having you as a dad. What kind of steps do you take, not to necessarily impose um, an interest in something on them, but to kind of be mindful as to how they come to understand these technologies. Yeah, and, and my wife also does app development, software development. Yeah. So, so they get the benefit of both parents, I would say. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, I think the second that I require my kids to do these kinds of things at home, to be like, you must go to code.org and go program something or you must program this robot yeah you know that's that's obviously not going to work out well that's the best way to take the air out of the sales <laughs> yeah that's right but it's at the same time i like to encourage or inspire them kind of show them stuff you know so that they sort of discover things on their own to some extent you know leave a robot out just program it see if they get interested wait for them to ask i think in many cases though it is sort of a you know, it, it's an interesting push and pull. It's like a little bit of guidance there. Like I'm definitely setting up situations um, where they might be interested in doing something. I may even ask, like, would you like to build a robot for Halloween or something like that yeah. to see if they're interested. But I'm not going to be like forcing them into into any of these things. Gotcha. Um, 
And I mean, I think that approach is probably the right one to take at home. You know, so my kids are eight and 10 and they've both definitely programmed robots. My 10 year old daughter has done a lot of building with the hummingbird kits also, but she has her own interests, right? She's like really interested in origami. So, I mean, I'm perfectly happy for her to be super interested in origami. I want her to have her own natural interests and I'd rather, you know, support those than try to impose my interests on her directly. Makes sense. Tom, this has been great. We already cranked through like 35 minutes here. <laughs> Before we let you go and ask our standard last two questions, anything else you're hoping to share today about bird brain or the technology or STEM education that we didn't give you a chance to? <laughs> I could go on for hours, but no, I, I don't think so. Cool. So if you want to learn more about bird brain, connect with you, company, what digital coordinates can we provide that uh, folks can use to learn more? So for bird brain technologies, our handles are at bird brain tech. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, our website is uh, birdbraintechnologies.com. Personally, I'm Tom at birdbraintechnologies.com. I'm happy to, to get email. I'm kind of old-fashioned that way. I, I am on Facebook, but not often. And yeah, yeah. Beautiful. We're going to link that in the show notes. You can find it in the podcast player where you're probably listening to it right now or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for this and every episode of the show. But before we let Tom go, we're going to give him like one more time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Okay. So my actionable challenge is to reflect, take a, a few days and reflect on what could be your superpower for good. And to give you an example of what I mean by that, in 2013, I started the Finch Loan Program. And that idea was to, like I said earlier in the show, counteract the you know inequity in, in kind of where educational access or access to robots is in the, in the school system. And the reason that I decided to do that as opposed to other things that I could have done was because my superpower at that time was I can buy these robots at cost. I can lend them out for free. I mean, it doesn't cost me as much as it would cost a nonprofit to buy the robots from me and lend them out for free. Yeah. So um, that was my superpower. And I decided like that would be the thing that I would invest from a philanthropic, philanthropic perspective, most of our energy into as a company and personally too. So, Everybody has kind of unique both talents and circumstances. Um, and so that means that probably most people are well-intentioned, but there is probably a couple of ways in which you could make the most impact. Yeah. And so I would ask you or encourage your audience to think about not just how can I make an impact, but how can I make the most impact? What can What is my superpower? I love that because it really forces you into a framework of self-awareness and mm -hmm. perspective on where you have some sort of unique capability. That's not always, you know, there can be places where you'd love to make an impact, right. where it would feel good, where it'd be great in theory, but that real recognition of where your greatest leverage is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Beautiful. Greatest leverage. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, yeah. man. Thanks so much. We just went deep with Tom Lowers. Hope we're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. We have a large back catalog of great interviews, including other technologists and roboticists like Jurgen Pedersen, 
of RE Squared Robotics. You can always reach out to me personally on Twitter or LinkedIn for a personalized episode suggestion. But if you like thoughtful conversations, not only about the present, but also about the future, you should keep it tuned right here to this podcast. Hit subscribe so you don't miss a new episode every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.